Welcome to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. On this week's podcast, we bring you an unaired interview from The Vault, which Andrew and I recorded in 2019. This may be one of my favorite discussions we've had since we started the podcast, so I'm glad it will finally be seeing the light of day. We will be discussing a paper that co-host Andrew Kleiman wrote back in 2006 about some of the unanswered and seldom discussed theoretical problems that would arise in the construction of a society which attempts to break from the capitalist mode of production. The paper is entitled, Not by Politics Alone, and you can find it on MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. Andrew argues in the paper that these problems won't be solved merely by building left organizations or recruiting members. They require some actual thinking, and we will be doing some of that actual thinking on this podcast. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. To hear more episodes, read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please do visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we will commence our main segment discussing Andrew's paper, Not by Politics Alone. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to discuss some current events. So we are recording this current event section on Wednesday, July 15th. We're going to be talking about the state of the pandemic and this issue of schools reopening. Um, just to put some things in perspective, uh, Italy is now reporting around 200 new cases of coronavirus a day. Uh, Germany, 400, whereas in the U.S., Texas had 9,000 a day a few days ago. Florida had 15,000 a day a few days ago. So the U.S. crisis is accelerating rapidly while other countries are safely uh, reopening to various extents. Um, Trump's plan is to force life to return to normal by pretending the virus isn't there. And this is all happening in the U.S. as schools are set to open in a few weeks, returning from summer vacation, and people are trying to figure out what to do. And because there's no national plan in the U.S., it's up to governors and mayors and school districts to make their own plans and to evaluate on their own uh, what's safe and what isn't safe. And for parents and teachers to also have to figure out on their own uh, what they feel is safe. You're, you're a parent with school-age kids, Brenda, yeah. and you're going to be confronting this situation very soon. How does the, this whole push to reopen the schools in the U.S. Uh, being pushed very hard by Trump and, and his people, how does this strike you and how are you going to react to it if they basically try to force the schools open? Well, we've decided uh, personally that we're going to homeschool our kids for the next year. Uh, it's not easy, but we've been doing it already since the lockdown started, and we've decided it is manageable. I work from home, and I, I am very flexible with my schedule, and so we decided this is the best solution for us. Um, and we all thought, also just thought it was the safest solution. We're very worried that um, when schools reopen, it's going to be a real shit show, and it's going to spread this virus around like crazy. There is a narrative out there that uh, kids don't spread the, this coronavirus um, as much as adults do. I'm very skeptical of that narrative. I mean, I've heard it from doctors, and I, there's, apparently there's, there's some data behind it. So I don't want to you know, sound like I'm uh, being anti-science or something. But you know, with, with every other uh, sickness, 
you know, from my experience, kids spread it like crazy in schools. You know, for anyone who's been a, has been a parent of a school-aged kid, they know that from the first day of school through the whole school year, someone is, you know, there's germs in the house all the time. People are getting sick. I mean, for our family, it's the entire school year, somebody's sick. Um, because of the germs that are bouncing around in the school. So it's hard for me to imagine that this one virus is so different that somehow kids don't spread it, but everyone else does. Right. I mean, look, this is a a novel coronavirus. Nothing was known about it because it was new. And they're still finding out a lot about it. And in a situation like that, uh, you're bound to make mistakes, but what you should do is err on the side of caution. But that's if you care about human life, right? Which, which is the real issue here, especially in the southern United States, and especially if you're opening in uh, late August, right? You, you got air conditioned everywhere. You got the same air circulating again and again and again with filters that may or may not probably don't, don't catch this. And the, and the kids are, are there. It, it, it makes absolutely no sense to me. I mean, you got six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds. You, you're going to t- tell them to social distance and wear masks and face shields all day. Even even if you can get them to wear masks, the idea that you're going to keep them apart is just nuts. So I mean, I mean, I think people realize this. So even the, the Trumpites realize this. I mean, what this is showing me is this profound indifference to human life. The question is. And I'm not sure everybody really understands this. I'm not sure I entirely understand it. Why are they doing this? Why are they so insistent on forcing the schools to reopen? I mean, are, do these people value education and expertise and stuff? I, I, it's not what I think, right? I mean, we should say that people want schools to reopen, and they have a lot of rational reasons to want schools to reopen. I mean, this schools being closed is taking a real emotional, financial, psychological, e- economic toll on society. It's wrecking people's you know, relationships with their families and their emotional stability. Uh, kids' educations are being compromised. They're you know, not getting the socialization they need for their emotional development. Um, a lot of kids are not getting enough food to eat because they rely on school lunch programs for their meals. All of the inequalities we have around education in this country are being amplified. We, we have to acknowledge that schools being closed is a major problem for our society. But, you know, the problem is there just don't seem to be safe ways to open most schools, and at least in a lot of parts of the country. Some of the people I feel for the most are the teachers. I mean, these are people who did not sign up for this gig. They already have a hard job, and this was not what they signed up for. I mean, for, they already had to completely redesign their curriculums at the drop of a hat back in the spring, which was hard for them to do. It was a completely new set of skills they had to learn, like overnight. And then they had to suffer the criticism from all the people who complained about how shitty uh, remote learning has been. And now they're being asked to do both. They have to reopen schools and take the personal health risks, and they have to create and manage this online content. And on you know the side of the personal health health risks, I mean, like here in Philadelphia, over seventy percent of the teachers are over fifty. So, you know, there's I, I you know there's a lot of reasons they should be worried for their own safety going into school. But they also have to run the classroom and keep everyone safe somehow in these complicated, underfunded, dilapidated buildings. I mean, here in Philadelphia, you already have problems with lead and asbestos in all the schools. We have, you know, a severe lack of, like, health staff, often a shortage of basic supplies like toilet paper, let alone textbooks. And now, you know, in Philadelphia, they decided that the schools are going to be open just two days a week. They just called this this morning. 
which means the teachers are going to be having students rotating through their classroom throughout the week, and they're going to be managing their remote learning at the same time. So it, as far as I can tell, it sounds like twice as much work. Yeah, it's very bad. I mean, will, will they go for it? I mean, I, I, it's not even possible to do. I think a lot of teachers are just going to say, fuck it, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not up for this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are too many people who are going to have concerns about their health or the health of family members. You know, they're just going to do the cost-benefit analysis and say, I'm out of here. And we're probably going to have a teacher shortage. Maybe we'll even have strikes. Yeah, I, I think there well might be strikes. This is certainly something that can't go smoothly. I mean, you know, everybody, what you say, wants the schools to reopen. You could reopen the schools, you know, if you had some sort of responsible policy you know, you dedicated a lot of resources to this with, with contact tracing and, and continual testing, building new facilities, uh, and, and you had some, some thoughtful policy of how you could run education, not by means of the standard classrooms, but, but you know, you, you, you've got the, the Trumpites and basically their policy is anything good that happens Trump takes credit, and everything bad that happens, which is pretty much everything, oh, he's not responsible. Oh, that's for the states, that's for the this, that's for the that. What everybody expected, you, you just let this fester, the the pandemic, and get, it's going to get worse. Uh, and now it is getting worse, and now it's getting worse in the red states, and because by and large, they've been the ones that are acting like, you know, oh, we're never going to get it. It's only blacks and Latinos and old people who get it. And, uh, but now now they're starting to get it, and they're starting to have second thoughts. You know, this, there's, they're, they're basically like, well, if it's bad news and reflects badly on Trump, we don't, we don't want to hear it. We're going to act like it, it doesn't exist. And I tell you, the, the silver lining here is that I, I think people are starting to really understand that truth matters. You know, and that trying to make reality secondary to the narrative you want to tell doesn't work. Um, and I expect that to have, if we survive all of this stuff, I expect that to have some really good consequences down down the road, medium term. Because I mean, it, it, it's 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 become crazy. But but the, the Trumpites have tried to to do with this pandemic what they what they try to do with everything is lie, make up bizarre narratives and blame everybody else even even to the point of well you know you don't wear masks because this is just a conspiracy to hurt trump really really crazy stuff and i don't know that people like say outside of the united states can even understand it you know clearly we live in a shithole country to use the term i mean europe is europe is saying no we're not going to let people from that shithole country even visit our country right that that's that's the state to which we've been reduced so somebody who takes Marx's work seriously, it seems to me that the, the Trumpites got themselves into, well, we don't know how to fix this pandemic, and, and that, that's not what we're about. You know, we're about placating our base. What we got to do is we got to, you know, win this election. We got to get the stock market numbers higher. And so we got to get the economy moving. And of course, the, the only way to really get the economy moving successfully is to solve this pandemic, but they don't know how to do it. They don't feel like they want to do it. it will, it's not going to go well, and they don't want to take responsibility for the fact that, like, they're in charge of everything. So they created this false dichotomy of 
get the economy moving versus do something about the pandemic. So the, the problem the problem with with getting the economy moving is you need people to go to work. And one of the major problems in getting people to go to work is how can they go to work if they've got to take care of their kids at home? So they say, well, okay, well, let's force the kids into school, you know, and force, force the, the, the teachers to take care of the kids so the parents don't have to. And we'll just force, 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 force. So I don't think it's because they, 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 they care about the education. I don't think it's they, they care about the intellectual or emotional or social development of the kids. They're just like, you know, warehouse these kids somewhere so that the parents can put, put their lives under threat. So parents can go out and work and put their lives at threat to pump up this economy, at least through November 3rd. You know, maybe we have a chance of being reelected here. So I think it's very cynical and I think it's, you know, horribly anti-human and and just shows a profound indifference to human lives and well-being. I think people see this. I, I, I you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, I'm not the only person who's, who's seen this, but I think it's pretty widely understood. Well, that's all the time we have for this current events section. Up next, our main segment, a discussion of Andrew's paper, Not By Politics Alone. Do you want to maybe start off, Andrew, by just saying, like, why do you remember why you wrote this piece, like what the context was that you that prompted you to want to write this? Yeah, the overall context is, you know, I had been on the left in the revolutionary movement at that point for I mean, all, already it was decades. And just I had these nagging doubts that the people around me, the people in the movement generally were thinking about issues of the creation of a new society, were thinking about it realistically, were aware of the problems. I, you know, I always got a sense that people would talk about socialism or new society or whatever it might be in almost eschatological religious terms, like, like heaven, you know, something beyond that we don't really know, but everything's going to be wonderful. And that became increasingly problematic as, as I saw it in light of, you know, the USSR collapsing and Margaret Thatcher famously saying, Tina, there is no alternative. And th- this caught on. I mean, you know, it wasn't obvious in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell or a few years years later when the USSR officially became a private capitalist country, but just became widely accepted that, that, that socialism had failed, you know, or communism had failed or, or, or whatever, and that there is no alternative. And you didn't have people really giving much of an effective response to that. And then you've got the global justice movement touched off by the, the protests in, in Seattle, right around the start, start of the new millennium, I believe it was, and people saying uh, another world is possible. And you had you know, support for this coming from the movement and the government in Brazil, Lula. And um, so that became a, a, a big thing. You know, another world is possible. However, what you had were at that time, a lot of people focused on, especially younger people, what's known as horizontalism, forms of organization, and an emphasis on decision making. And here we're just going to decide to do things differently. And the way we decide will be, you know, horizontal and decentralized and so forth. And it, look, it was not 
frontally younger people. You know, they were just saying the same kinds of things that, that older people were saying. For instance, Delinus organization, there were several Delinist organizations. They go back to Daniel Delinan, uh, you know, American socialists. And now it's about 120 years ago or so. You know, I went to one of their panels or something at the Socialist Scholars Conference Left Forum or something like this. And it was all, they're, they're thinking, and these were older people. These were these were people who were older than me at the time. Well, they're still older than me. Still alive. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they were older then than I am now uh, in many cases. And, and I'm not a spring chicken, you know. I'm not even a late summer chicken. So it, it was all about decision making and the division of responsibilities. And, and the idea was just we decide what to do as if deciding what to do means it gets done and it works. And what bothers me about this, and this is why I say it's, you know, religious or eschatological kind of magical thinking is in people's daily lives, they don't talk or act like this at all. Nobody, when they're dealing with a matter that they consider seriously, believes or acts as if deciding on something and implementing that decision is just the, the answer to everything as if it's automatically going to work. For a number of reasons, that's why like people hire plumbers and, and they go to doctors and things like that. They don't do it themselves because they want people who can accomplish the thing with knowledge and who have experience and understanding that they don't have. And Andrew, when you say that the emphasis was on just deciding to do things and then doing it, are you talking about like forms of organization and consensus-based or other sorts of democratic organizational forms within activist movements or communities? Or are you talking about um, like those activists like deciding to create the world as they want and just sort of by force of will um, put the, that world into practice? Well, various people all have different ideas about form of organization. You know, what's the best form of organization? So you got the people who want decentralized federation of workers councils. You, you got people who have other ideas. You've got the people who, you know, just think, oh, good, we get to decide for ourselves. We do our own thing. You know, that, that's pretty common. So all of that, I would say, is one aspect of the focus on decision making. There's another aspect as well, though. The other aspect of focus on decision-making is the, the notion that what we have are distorted priorities in society. You've got politicians and interest groups and the ruling class whose priorities are not all. And what we have to do is decide to do things differently. The, the decisions that are being made are the wrong decisions for us. And if different decisions are made, that will solve all of our problems. In some ways, this dovetails with or sounds like or seems analogous to critiques of the Soviet Union that focus just on like the political form of organization, the lack of democracy, um, rather than looking at like the mode of production and uh, examining it as, as a state capitalist society. Yeah, um, that that that's an underlying view uh, or an articulated view in many cases of, of 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 a lot of people that that in some way those societies were socialist, uh, if not communist, and that what was wrong with them was their and only their undemocratic nature or the fact that they were top down. And people would talk about socialism from below instead of socialism from above, or socialism and democracy instead of socialism. Without democracy, I, I I think all of that is it, it, wrong. But uh, we we can maybe talk about that. But it, the the problems were not were not just political, in my view. 
So that was the context for this paper you wrote. There was a lot of emphasis on forms of organization. You thought they were bigger, more important questions that needed to be addressed if we were really going to talk about alternatives to capitalism. Yeah, that was part of it. And and also part of it was when people did talk about like actual economic issues that are wrapped up in this whole idea of a new society, there was there was unreality there. And actually, that unreality goes way, way back. It goes far back in the movement. It goes back to the Second International. It's there in, in Lenin, you know, who was in the main second international Marxist. These people just, I think, had had a poor understanding of what an economy is. I don't know if you want to get into that, but I think they had a, a, a poor understanding of what an economy is. So they did not really grapple with the nature of economic problems. I mean, for instance, I mean, Lenin spent a long time talking about accounting and control, accounting and control. And the meaning of that shifted <laughs> as the problem he faced became real. But this is like coming from something that, that Engels wrote and Engels gave this impression. I don't know if Engels really meant it, but it wasn't the, the smartest thing to have said, which is basically like under socialism, all the economic problems become simple and become accounting problems. And, you know, anybody with a high school education can add and subtract. And so, you know, there, there are no economic problems to deal with. You know, it's just a matter of accounting, which is frankly nuts. So you think Lenin shared with Engels a certain naive assumption about the simplicity of economic problems? Oh, for for sure. If you read, I, I believe it's uh, the State and Revolution. I've, read, I've written something on this about a decade or so ago. You read the State and Revolution, and he's getting this from the Second International. He's he's saying people say, well, how is socialism possible? He says we got a fine example of, of socialism: the postal service. Right. Yeah, he does say that. So the first thing I say is obviously Lenin was not aware of going postal. <laughs> I said, I, I said this. I said this. I was in Sweden. This was, I don't know, my, maybe 2007. There was one woman who had been in Los Angeles. She starts to crack up. The other people had no idea what the hell it was. But um, this is coming from Hilferding or something that the monopolies, you know, the big oligopolists, the corporations are already implicitly socialist. And it's just what's not socialist is the ownership and the control. So we bring them under social ownership and control. And then, oh, yeah, we got to sort of knit them together. Right. Right. You know, and then that a fully developed system of enterprises all modeled on the postal service, you know, all these mono monopolistic entities like this, that is socialism. That was Lenin's conception as of 1917. Yeah. Okay, it's right there, and it's really naive. But I'm sure there are people who still swear by this. I, I, I've heard the craziest things in response to this that I've written that we're discussing and, and everything else. I mean, just like, but the main problem is, is like people don't want to talk about it. They get really anxious. And again, I think it has to do with this wanting there to be a, a beyond in which everything's going to be perfect and we don't have to think about it. Right? So there's a lot of emphasis on the left today on just building movements, building the left. Um, and not on the sort of envisioning a post-capitalist world. So, you know, what's your make your case for why it's important for people to think now about alternatives to capitalism rather than just like base building. I think that that is the, the, the biggest mistake that people make is to think that we can just make a revolution, have a change in, in power, and then we got time to work it out and experiment and see what we want. And of course, there'll be new people and new people will, because they're new people, they're, they're going to solve all the problems by virtue of being new people. So we don't have to give it anything.
Well, first of all, I mean, you, you, you're going to have the counter-revolution waiting in the wings for any opportunity. And you screw up, and they're going to come right back. We live in a world that doesn't matter who's in power or, you know, you say we got rid of capitalism or whatever. We live in a world where you got to produce. you got to distribute what you've produced. That has to happen day in, day out, hour in, hour out. You know, if you say, well, let's experiment. Let's just call a moratorium to all economic activity for three weeks while we figure this out, you know, that's even without a counter-revolution waiting in the wings. You wait, you wait three weeks, you know, you've killed maybe a billion people. Okay. So, so we got to get real about these, these problems, right? And, and you can't experiment because what you do now affects what happens later. I'm not saying there can't be any experimentation, but experimentation is not a solution to these problems is what I'm saying. Uh, you also, in this essay, you sort of break the question about um, theorizing an alternative to capitalism uh, into two sort of subsets. One is how you actually break with the capitalist mode of production, but also how this could be sustainable. And I think you were just kind of getting to that. But what what does that mean for it to be sustainable? And what are sort of the basic parameters involved with that problem? In this essay that we're discussing, I kind of broke that into to two parts. One part has to do with the economic issues concerning sustainability. The, the other issue is how can a revolution in part of the world sustain itself in the face of, you know, pressures to overthrow it, counter revolution. I mean, what would obviously solve the problem is world revolution. I mean, that has to be the perspective. The only thing that will ultimately guarantee that we can have a socialist society is socialism, you know, the world over. Uh, socialism in one country ultimately can't work. So we, the perspective has to be that for world revolution for a lot of reasons, both uh, economic, but also political, you know, to, to, to fight off the, 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 the attempt to revert back to capitalism. Okay. But the problem is you're not going to have instantaneous revolution the world over everywhere, you know? So what can be done to defend the places that have or are trying to make a break with capitalism to keep them from reverting so they can then become like a, a beachhead. I'm not sure if that's the right metaphor, but a place from which the revolution can be extended. Okay, so that's that's the one issue. And then there are all the, the questions of economic sustainability. And, the, and just so people are clear, the reason we can't have socialism in one country, you, you said that it's political and economic, right? This political in terms of the sense of needing to defend the revolution from uh, uh, other capitalist powers, but it's also economic because um, there are economic coordination problems that go beyond the borders of countries. It's partly, yes, uh, economic coordination problems that go beyond the border of countries. Uh, but in addition to that, there are the pressures from the world market. Right. What are you going to do when you have like, oh, gee, we can get stuff cheaper and that'll be good for us for a variety of reasons. If we import this from, let's say, you know, the United States, which is still capitalist, or we get our oil from uh, Putin's Russia or, you know, natural gas or something like that. Um, so there are those th those kinds of those kinds of issues in this essay you talk about a socialist society needing to quote deliver the goods what do you mean by that term you know i don't really know uh <laughs> that's that's one of those one of those phrases um i mean but among other things it means that it has to find a way to make sure that like people have food on the table they have shelter uh and all of that you know in most of the world obviously what we also have to do is uh increase people's standard of living right increase people's standard of living but also their experience of work needs to be 
one that is not the experience of labor in a capitalist society, right? Oh, sure. I'm not saying everything is a matter of, you know, output, consumption of output, uh, living standards. There, there are other things as well that are extremely important. So you, you, you mentioned work, the way we do work, safety conditions, whether the work is stupid or fulfilling, and how much we work, how long. I mean, those are, are very important issues as well. They're not delivered the goods, but that just means delivered the goods is not the all and end all. I see. So by delivering the goods, you're talking about more like concrete pr products, commodities that have to be yeah, goods moved around, not like more abstract yeah. quality of life things. Right. No, it doesn't mean – I'm, look, I'm looking at the definition. To do something that you promised to do or, or expected to do, uh, I, I didn't mean it in that, that general okay. sense. <clears throat> do you mean uh, like – Now I see the problem. Yeah. I, 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 that's not what I meant. I meant actually like – get the goods right uh to the point of consumption move objects through space and yeah. time to people's yeah. tables yeah get them produced gotcha not, then move them to where they need to go you know in, in space and time so you write that uh, quote even more importantly the coordination problem is one thing that makes starkly clear that achieving a new society is not principally a matter of decision making or politics or forms of organization so just to be clear can we clarify why that isn't a problem of just decision making can we just decide what to produce and where to send it sure but uh i mean what let me, let me ask you what kind of decision making is involved in that process I, I mean most of the process cannot be decision making most of most of that has to be coordination okay i mean i give it in the in in, in the essay I give a simple example you got a workers cooperative and they produce juice and they want to produce more juice so they okay we're going to increase our output of juice okay that's great you got another workers cooperative that produces cartons and bottles but the work processes are unsafe and alienating so they say let's you know get out of this we're going to do something else instead we're going to uh, you know do landscaping so they you know they implement that decision and now there's no cartons and no bottles and so lo and behold there's all this juice and nothing to put them in there's nothing to put the juice in so you got these decisions and you know it becomes a complete mess you know you could talk about economic coordination then so that you've got appropriate quantities of cartons and bottles in which to put appropriate quantities of juice but now you're not talking about decision making now you're talking about taking some more general decision and doing what it takes not decision making doing what it takes to make it happen in an effective manner that's not decision making and so the greater part of the process and where all the real problems lie is in working out how to get this right you know what can be done to make this process of how much to produce of what kinds how to get get things from one place to another, all kinds of problems like this. That's the real nuts and bolts. That's the, the real set of issues concern that, you know, at some broad societal level, you know, you have to have social priorities of some sort or another. But the problem with, with thinking even at that broad societal level that the issues are those of decision making is that we face pretty, pretty, pretty tight economic constraints. You know, we can't have everything and do everything all at once, you know, without regard regard to the resources that we have, including the people that we have, and so forth and so on. So choices have to be made that, you know, recognize the, these, these constraints 
and the choices have to be consistent with one another, right? So just like you can't have a thing work where you're producing a lot more juice and no bottles and cartons, that's not consistent. There's other things as well. You you know, you know, I used to teach economics and, you know, I know how people talk and they go, well, we need to maximize this, maximize that, maximize the other thing. You can't maximize everything at once, okay? So you have to work out what's optimal in some larger sense such that the whole coheres. Uh, for instance, at any time, we're going to have the, the people that we have with the knowledge that we have, with the natural resources and the, you know, produced materials that we have. And, you know, we can think about cutting down working time and we can think about making work processes less safe. And we can think about, you know, enhancing people's standard of living, especially in the less developed countries. But you can't do all of this to the maximum all at once. You know, the more you do of one, the, the less you do of the other. Let's talk a little bit more, a little bit more about that, about standard of living on the on the world scale, and how this factors into these dual um, competing tensions. Because on one hand, we want to reduce poverty and have equality of standards of living across the world in the some you know future socialist world society, but we also want to reduce um, people's working time and reduce onerous work and dehumanizing work. So what is, what, what are the trade-offs here? And you know, how, how close is our current productive capacity um, able to deliver uh, you know, something, as you call sustainable? Uh, how far are we from that with our current abilities? Right, I first wanna say something about the first point that you mentioned um, about reducing poverty through, throughout the world. Even if we don't want it, it's a big issue. Um, and it's a big issue in something that seems far removed from this, perhaps, which is the, the climate crisis. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, India, China, they're saying, you guys got yours. You know, we're trying to develop. We're trying to industrialize. Mm -hmm. You know, you guys use coal. You know, we're going to use coal. Yeah. And. You guys have AC. We're going to have AC. Yeah. Right. You're, you're not going to get a buy-in, so to speak, from the less developed countries for the reconstruction of, of, of society if, you know, you just go, okay, well, we'll, we'll do it over here and, you know, you can worry about you. So we've seen what, what's happening with regard to climate and it's really hard. You know, I don't like the, the, the rulers of those those countries, especially China and India, but they, they make a valid argument in this case. So it's something we have to do even if we don't feel like doing it because you're just not going to have uh, support for the, the, the socialist reconstruction without that. Um, okay, but to get to your question, how far away are we from that? Well, uh, when I when I wrote wrote this this essay, which was about, I don't know... 13 years, 2006, right? So 13 thir years yeah, ago. Yeah, 13, 13 years ago. So I, I, I went online and I, I crunched a few of the numbers. And at that point, what I found is that the production, the output per person, the average you know uh, output uh, or income... Uh, uh, in the world was 22% uh, of the average in the United States. Okay, so let's say average income. So that's less than a quarter. I, I remember crunching the, the, the numbers at one point since then, and the numbers hadn't changed substantially. So I don't know, maybe now it, it might be 26% of the U.S. average, but maybe it's 21%. I, it's, it, it, it will not have changed substantially. Um, so that's that's about where we are, and that means if you think of reading 
redistribution as the solution to all of our economic problems. You're saying the solution to all of our economic problems is to have everybody in the world live at about one quarter of the standard of living of the average in person, you know, in the United States, which ain't the most desirable situation that I can think of. Right. Well, it's a hard sell. Yeah. It's hard. Even if you, even if you thought ideologically that that was fair, that's a hard sell. Yeah, that's why it's better to ignore these kinds of issues, Mm -hmm. you know, for some politics and to just promise that redistribution will solve everything. And if we go back to the climate uh, question, I mean, this is sort of an abstract uh, question because um, standard of living isn't directly uh, the equivalent of like uh, carbon footprint or energy consumption. Um, But it would be hard to imagine. I mean, already our current standard of living is ecologically uh, catastrophic and it'd be hard to imagine the entire planet um, rising to like the standard of of consumption uh, in the United States and still have some kind of hope for preserving a civilization from like a climate uh, apocalypse. Yeah, I I think that's a a real difficult issue because the standard of living of like the average, you know, household uh person in the united states is not that great you know people live paycheck paycheck uh and if if that is not even sustainable on a global level i mean um well what tell me what what i don't even what is standard of living encompass as a as an economic indicator um is it like the amount of uh, commodities the bundle of like consumer goods that you buy per year per income is that what the it, it, it describes okay standard of living is kind of a, a, a general term uh it's not a specific indicator the closest indicator that um you know is actually measurable uh and measured that i could think of would be real income okay yeah real income and real real income means not your income in money terms but how much stuff you can get with that income what, what level of goods and services do people's incomes allow them to have? I'm just thinking out loud, but I think there are so many things about my own standard of living that are so gratuitous and decadent. I mean, the fact that I can, like, order whatever I want on my computer and it just arrives on my doorstep within a day or two. Or that I can, like, get in a car and drive anywhere, get in an airplane anytime I want and go anywhere. I mean, ecologically speaking, I, I can't imagine if, if everyone had the expectation in the world and the ability to to do that i think it was their right to to have that level of consumption or the the people or the people should want i mean one of the craziest things that i've seen and lived through because i participated in it is people living so far from where they were right you know so it's not good at all you know you 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 travel you know 45 minutes i i I would i i traveled and my father did it as well i mean we we lived near washington dc and he traveled every day to baltimore and back wow you know, five days a week for, for, for decades. And what was it? I don't know, 40 miles away or something like that. And and p- there are people with even longer commutes. And, and you, you know... You, you, even within the same city. I mean, you know, yeah, people that sure. drive an hour, they live in the city they work in, but it's an hour of commuting. Sure. And this is a complete waste. And it's very, you know, tiring to people. Uh, it's among the reasons people are, you know, so so worn out. And and I mean, we don't need any of that kind of stuff. But but you then have to talk about the designing communities. Yeah. 
um, construction of space. That's not, and... that's not that, yeah, that's not, that's, that's not the, the capitalist way where, you know, you just let it all hang out. And of course, the decentralized decisions that individuals make is, is going to be good for everybody as if by an invisible hand. I mean, you know, just like nutty, crazy argumentation like that. You know, we've seen that with the Internet, right? Just just, just let the Internet just, just happen. No, no regulation. It'll all be wonderful, you know? Yeah, what could go wrong? Vladimir Putin would threaten all, all the, whole, the whole world and Donald Trump would be elected president, etc. It'd all be great, yeah. So, you know, look, there there are a lot of problems that can be solved, solved in part with different priorities and judicious planning and decision making. Not not everything. I mean, definitely not everything. You can't talk about socialism just by talking about making better decisions and, and having better priorities. But but there 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 is a lot that could be done, let's say, to maintain and even enhance the standard of living in developed countries, places like places like the United States states with less much less of an environmental footprint than we now have hey i hope you're enjoying the interview i certainly am in just a few moments we will continue with this interview but first a few words from angela clard organizational secretary of marxist humanist initiative the organization which sponsors this podcast hello this is angela clard organizational secretary of marxist humanist initiative Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. So one of the things you're working on in this essay or talking about is describing a non-capitalist way of coordinating um, these questions. What exactly would what principle would be the coordinating principle? What would be the coordinating principles if we weren't doing it 
you know, what would actually make this sort of coordination not capitalist? Well, what capitalist coordination is in the, the, the classical, typical case is it works without any societal decision making. It's very decentralized. It operates through markets. And this whole idea of an invisible hand is that despite this seeming anarchy, it all works out. You know, and to some extent, to some extent, that's the case. But the way I always think of it is capitalism is like, you know, a bad doc. Capitalism seems to work at all because it buries its mistakes. So companies go under, you know, people lose their jobs, all kinds of disasters and, and, and things happen, you know? but that gets hidden from view. So what's left, what survives, I mean, there's a lot of waste of human beings and resources and, and everything involved in this the strong survive and the weak perish. And, you know, we're talking about people and we're talking about uh, what 90% of new businesses fail and all, all kinds of things like that. So in any case, in court, the coordination in, in, the kind of ideal capitalist cases uh, through markets and the, the idea of a market is everything's got a price and if you are willing to pay willing and able to pay that price you get it if not you don't get it and so nobody is entitled to anything and nobody is required to provide uh, for, for anybody and you solve the problems of the constraints that we face uh, by putting uh, price Prices on things and things that are more scarce command higher prices, so they're hard to get. They require more use of your income, more use of your resources, and things that are plentiful uh, have a low price. That's that's a thumbnail sketch of what a, a market system is supposed to be. Right. But what are we replacing this with? Then? Well, we, you know, we can't have markets in that sense. I mean, obviously, we can have things like supermarkets, right? Places where you get goods. But we, we have to have a system. I mean, if socialism is anything, it's, it's, it's got to be a system where we're all in this together. and we, We're responsible for one another. And we, we are meeting at least each other's basic needs. Hopefully, we'll do a lot beyond that. People are entitled to things, obviously, under certain conditions and, you know, if if they contribute in various adequate ways that we can we can talk about. So we, we, we have responsibilities to, to every individual and, and each individual has certain things to which they're they're entitled. So at this point, you're no longer talking about prices. And what that means is that you just can't use markets to coordinate. So you have to find other ways to coordinate. Right. And, and in other words, let's let's take this this juice and, and, and bottle carton stupid example. Right. So you you got this one enterprise that's expanding its production of juice. You got another enterprise, and let's imagine these are the only two, and they they're they're moving into landscaping instead of producing bottles and cartons. Okay, what would happen in a market system is the price of cartons and bottles, the prices of those things would go sky high. That would be an inducement for other people to shift out of whatever they're doing and start to produce bottles and and cartons, and the price would would, would go up to such a point where the needed amount of bottles and cartons were forthcoming or the, the juice producers would say, oh my God, you know, this is costing us too much to put all this juice in, in bottles and cartons. Let's cut down on how much juice we produce. Some combination of that would, would result. And most of microeconomics is about like exactly what would be, you know, the, the shifts taking place and, and how. Okay. So you, you, it's all got to match in the end. The, in other words, the supply has to 
match the demand. Supply of cartons and bottles has to match the, the enterprise that produces the juice, right? Their demand for cartons and, and bottles. And so something's got to get. The amount of demand is too big. The amount of supply is too small. In a market system, the movements in the price, at least in the, the ideal case, the movements in the price solve the problem until the quantities that are supplied and demanded match. We have to we have to do things things different. There's you know participatory economics, PariCon, developed by uh, Michael Albert and Robin Hennell. This has some you know criticisms of, of what they've done. I think it's you know a good way of thinking about a lot of these economic issues. This participatory economics. There are some problems with what they say, but I think that they really have done most of what's needed in terms of laying the foundation for solving the coordination problem. I mean, basically, it, it's not that hard. It's a technical, it's a set of technical problems and requires a lot of information. Is the goal of the technical, whatever the, the sort of coordination solution is, is the goal to come, at, come up with the same result that the market would have come up with? No. And yes. Because it's not just a question of like, okay, the market can do this without it being planned. So we're just going to create a plan that does the same thing as the market, but we're not going to call it prices. We're going to have a different sort of metrics, but they're going to create the same results. It's not quite that. It's not, that is not the goal that we're trying to get to here. No, and 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 yes. Let me let me let me try to break this down. Okay. First of all, any 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 of this coordination has to work under the general framework of certain social goals. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you might want to say, well, we have to have next year, next five years, whatever, uh, an X percent increase in our resource base. We have, so we have to invest, let's say, three percent a year for the next five years, mm -hmm. and we. Want want to provide everybody with a 2% increase in their standard of living. Other such things as well. So you have those general societal goals, okay? And then you know to some extent what your production capabilities are. From that, you can figure out what, what the options are subject to those constraints. So we've got the goals, we've got the, the resource base, stuff like that, okay? And then given all of that, what you are trying to do is to get some modicum of a Efficiency, which in this case basically means you got to match the supplies to the demands. I mean, how, how much labor of varying kinds different individuals are willing to supply, how much they consume, take out, how much of this gets produced, how much of that gets produced, so forth and so on. Yeah, you know, I mean, everything in the end has got to be matched. Other, otherwise, you're going to have people trying to produce and they need O-rings and there are no O-rings. So th things have got to be matched like that. And the way to match them is to get what people are willing not to take or, you know, not to consume, what they're willing to give, you know. What you have to do is match these things by altering certain scarcity indexes, okay? So for instance, let's say we say, okay, we, we want to, um, you know, have more coal, but nobody wants to go down in the mines and work, you know, digging coal, okay? So you want it, you know, we, we as a society, 
society said, yeah, let's have more coal. I don't know why we would want to say that, but let's say we, you know, in, in China and India, they, they might want to say that. Okay. But nobody wants to go down to the mines and, 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 and dig the coal. So if you, you got like a free society like, like this, what's going to happen is you're not going to force people into the mines at gunpoint, nor are you going to do what is done in the classic capitalist case. You know, they're poor, you know, and they, they got no alternatives. So they go down into the mines. What you'll do is say, okay, gee, we don't have people want to go in the mine. So the scarcity index, and it's called a shadow price, but it's not a price. Okay. I want to make that clear. It's not a price, not in any real sense of the word. It's a scarcity. The scarcity index for coal would go sky high. Okay. Scarcity index for coal mining labor would go sky high. Okay. And at that point, people would say, okay, well, we want this coal, but it, you know, we can't have it. It's too scarce. We could have, you know, a little bit of coal, but then we wouldn't have food on the table. You know, we wouldn't have a car or whatever. Uh, we'll, 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 you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do with something else. So there are myriad such things going on like this. You would have several iterations in which people would be responding to these signals that, you know, you take all of these uh, individualized, you know, it might be partly individual household by individual household, might be individual enterprises, production units, all, all kinds of uh, smaller units like this. And they would be saying, okay, here's what we want. Here's what we're willing to offer. Okay. And they'd be responding to these scarcity indexes and making adjustments in light of them until the whole thing meshes. And, and it's not a price because why? Because nobody's actually paying anything. They're not giving up resources to get anything. I see. Another way of putting it is among the functions that prices fill is to provide information concerning scarcity. Right. Okay. Okay. So these scarcity indexes fulfill that function without being prices because they don't have any of the other characteristics of prices. I see. I see. What does that term come from? This comes from, and everything that participatory economics comes from is about, uh, comes from this old, old, old debate. Those, I don't know, over a hundred years at this point called the socialist calculation debate. Or here, here, here's, here's the gist of it. In, I don't know, the, the 1870s, a guy named Leon Varas showed, so to speak, that a decentralized private ownership market economy could be efficient, not in a laudatory sense of efficient, but just it could solve this coordination problem, okay? It could, it could, it could match the supplies to the demand. That, that's all we're talking about. It could match the supplies to the demand. So this, in principle, can be done in a decentralized private ownership market economy, whether it could actually be done as a whole other issue. Okay. Now, some people have taken that through the years to mean, you know, it can only be done in that manner, decentralized market private. That's not the case at all. That's not what he showed. And so you began to get in the decades after the question of whether a planned socialist economy could do the same thing, you know, without markets, without prices, without this decentralization and, and, and so forth. Is there another way to, to match the supplies and the demand? And generally, Generally, the, the answer that everybody thought was the answer is yes. Hayek, you know, uh, I mean, it's just the, the libertarians said, no, 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 because you need prices to provide the information and the central planners would not get uh, the adequate information. Okay. So then, I don't know, in the 1980s, something like this, Albert and Hanel come along with participatory economics and they say, you don't need centralized planning in the sense of you got planners to do the planning. And nowadays, the information problem is really 
something that could be solved without markets because we got computers, you know, and now, I don't know, 30 something years later, you know, it's so much easier, even when they were talking about it, for people to be providing information. You know, here's how I respond to the fact that the the scarcity index of coal is sky high. Um, maybe I want to go work in the mine because what's being offered to do that is all you can respond. You can respond pretty quickly and, and so forth. So so the information that, that we need is there and it probably wasn't uh, circa 1950 or 1960 or 1970 before the age of, of PCs and, and you know, the, the, the whole infrastructure for, um, you know, electronic communications. So you need some computer power to crunch the numbers, but got, we got that. Yeah. But this, I mean, this is really like the equivalent of accounting and control, this kind of stuff. Once you've got what people are willing to offer to do, what's then available, you, you total it all up and then you just need some judicious tweaking. You send back and say, okay, well, we're going to raise the, so the, the scarcity index of this kind of work, of this kind of good, lower it for this kind of work, this kind of good. You know, you got a new iteration and people respond to that. It's it's not, you know, it's 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 not rocket science, okay? So if, if it's not rocket science, um, why do you, you know, so the premise of the paper, this your not political alone essay is that um, people haven't been dealing with these questions. Right. I mean, I, I, I basically, look, there are really difficult questions to grapple with. Unsolved questions. The economic coordination problem is not one of those. Gotcha. But it's hugely important because it's just absolutely necessary. And, and what I'm trying to do is induce a different mode of thinking whereby people get out of this. We just have to have different priorities. We don't want any coal, you know, or we do want coal, but we don't want to work in the coal mines. You, you have to have consistency. You have to have supplies and demands matching. That's not a matter of decision making. And so I'm just trying to induce a shift away from that that kind of thinking. Not that the coordination problem cannot be solved or is even that difficult to solve. It, it's not. The other problems are, are, are huge, you know, unsolved. These are the questions like we were discussing earlier about the standard of living globally, uh, socialism in one country. Yeah. How, how to deal with the, the constraints that we face, the trade-offs that we have to make, because, you know, again, if we just redistribution is not a, a solution to everything, you just redistribute. We're, we're living, at, I don't know, something like a quarter of the, the average standard of living in the U.S. Or you say, OK, well, we'll have uh, planned communities and so we won't be driving all this way and we won't have, you know, so many plastic shells that, that you know, we'll, we'll eat things, you know, from stuff that's wrapped in paper and you can you can you can increase the standard of living a little bit but by, by doing that but I, I do sort of a thought experiment in the essay and i say factor in all of this stuff all kinds of waste the, the kind of waste from you know just living so far from where you work and the, the packaging and the waste of all the resources devoted to advertising and marketing and etc cetera, etc cetera. factor in some revolutionary enthusiasm because everybody's so enthused to be part of a new society do this do that do the other thing you might be able to double or triple maybe you know the outside maximum case you might be able conceivably to triple what, what that 22 percent so we would all be living at 66 percent two-thirds of the average standard of living in the u.s okay and that and then you at that point you can't say oh yeah but we would you know we wouldn't have this capitalist waste that's already factored in there so people like in the united states have to say is that what we want a one-third reduction in in how well we live in terms of in terms of consumption there's other things as well 
all right, how fulfilling our work is, how safe it is, how long we work. There's other issues as well. But in terms of the amounts of stuff that we consume, to me, you know, maximum imaginable is that changing social priorities, getting rid of the waste, you know, redistribution, et cetera, et cetera, that could bring the average standard of living throughout the world, you know, how much stuff we consume to the, the outside guess is, is two thirds of the U.S. average. And we got to deal with that. So we, we got problems of, of constraints. And because we have problems of constraints, we do not have a situation in which famously we have a society in which from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. That's not what we have because we have not unlimited amounts essentially to go around. People hear this and, and, and use this phrase from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. And I, I guess in many cases, they just think oh, it refers to a society in which we take care of people's needs. It doesn't mean that at all. It's an incredibly futuristic, utopian conception from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. That means that we are breaking any link in that kind of a futuristic, utopian situation. We are breaking any link, all links whatsoever, between what people contribute and what they receive. They receive according to their needs. They contribute without regard to what they receive according to their ability. You can only have that and, like, you know, Marx obviously recognized this right when he said what would what it would take to have such a situation for society to, to put that on its banners from each corner of their ability, each corner of their needs. We, we, we have to have untold plenty. Otherwise, you can't just say you, you receive just in accordance with your needs and people freely contribute without regard to what they're going to get. Why? Because they got everything that they need. Right? So we're not going to have that kind of society for the foreseeable future. Maybe not ever. Uh, this has long been known. Lenin in the state and revolution says, you know, we can't promise this. Who knows what, whether it's going to happen? He's absolutely right about that. So you can't talk if, if, if you talk about, you know, getting rid of capitalism and having socialism, you're not talking about immediately ha having that kind of a society. It's just, it's just not it's just not feasible. So you've got these constraints, you've got these trade-offs. And so what we need is a non-capitalist system, an entirely different way of matching receipts and contributions. Okay. In, in, a, in a capitalist society, you receive according to the prices that you can command, the wages that you can command, the prices for your goods that you command. You receive that and you give in accordance with what people are willing to offer you. Okay, uh -huh. we, we can't have that. I mean, you know, we have it, but it's, it's, it's not good at all. Well, this has been a great conversation, Andrew. I think we've really touched on a lot of points, material that is not often brought up when people talk about envisioning alternatives to capitalism. I mean, a lot of people on the left focus, still focus, always focus on building a movement. You get the movement and you get big and somehow that's going to, you know, solve the problem because we take over. I mean, so that goes to the issues of, is it the case that different people in power and different social priorities are going to solve all of the problems? Well, no. There are other things involved as well, such as you can get big, but if you don't have the, the right conceptions, it'll all come crashing down in a situation like the outbreak of World War One, where you had this huge social democracy in Germany, and yet they go off uh, in an imperialist, chauvinist direction. But beyond that, this idea that, oh, we can just leave everything to the future, different people, experimentation, it all work out. This is not convincing to most people. This is not the way most people think. 
And it's not just a right-wing Republican talking point to say, how would this future society work? Could it work? Most people are not going to put their lives on the line and sacrifice to change society if they think that it's not feasible and they have no idea what the alternative is supposed to be. Okay, yes, you get a lot of people on on the left like that. Um, This is kind of the characteristic of of left-wing people, but they're not the majority and they don't have much success in recruiting other people in, in any large amounts because other people are much more realistic about certain things, at least. So we have to address these questions because everybody can see it's a dodge. Everybody can see it's an evasion of the issues to just talk about, uh, oh, we'll have completely different people and we'll have revolutionary enthusiasm and people change and we'll experiment. It's it's all, it's all hand-waving. It just indicates that you don't know what you're talking about. Everybody can see you don't know what you're talking about. You discredit yourselves. So it's time to get real. Hey, and that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast or if you don't like the podcast, please let us know. Send us a comment. Uh, Tell your friends and enemies all about it. You can subscribe. We have an RSS feed and all the things that every other podcast has. If you want to know more about some of the things that we've touched on here, you should go read Andrew's paper for yourself. It's called Not By Politics Alone. You can find it on MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, where you can also find lots of other great things written by Andrew and other people.